The social sector and the private sector operate on two separate playing fields. How they raise money, how they spend money, how they reward their efforts are pretty diametrically opposed. As our globe becomes more connected, and almost everyone has access and ability to become their own media outlet, we've seen a rise in different financing models, not quite bridging the private social sector divides, but putting forth a third option that private industry and social innovators can leverage. Hark to the microfinancing models that Kiva, Kickstarter, Donors Choose, GoFundMe, Patreon, and others represent. These platforms are showing great results for thousands of people, organizations, and social innovators, but they are piecemeal in their approach. At this point, they do not compete with venture capital, hedge funds, large grants, or other sources of significant capital that help scale programs, projects, and impact. As of today, there are very few models of financial institutions that are helping social innovators scale their efforts. While the social sector and private sector operate on different playing fields, they impact our shared reality. So, how can we bridge this divide to ensure the great work of social innovators has the same opportunities to scale as the next Pepsi, Facebook, or GoPro? Today on Onward, I'm joined by Casey Johnson of RSF Social Finance, a social finance firm that is questioning assumptions about how money works and creating new models of how we engage with finance. Their unique approach is forwarding breakthrough ideas at the intersection of social change and finance. Casey, thanks so much for joining me here today. Of course, Daniel. Great to be here. Hosting you in your guys' beautiful office. Before we get started, um, just want to learn about what, who you are and what you do here at RSF. Yeah, thanks for joining us in the Presidio, Daniel. So I have been with RSF here for about two years. It's flown by. Um, a little bit about my personal journey. Before I started here, I was working at a company called Nonprofit Finance Fund. Um, and there I was doing financial management consulting for nonprofits specifically. Um, loved the work, got a great introduction to the social sector, and over time really started to feel a personal passion of mindset in around food and agriculture. Um, so I kind of took it upon myself to learn more about the intersection of finance and food. You know, how can I meld that personal and professional passion into one um, life journey, so to speak? I talked to a lot of folks about, you know, what that means and how they approach the work. And RSF was ultimately the best representation of my values, I think, both from the finance side of the world as well as the food side. So, so grateful to be here. And my role personally at RSF, I work on our business development and relationship management. So I have this really perfect job of getting to seek out and work with all of the best companies in the country, or a lot of them at least. So it's a really wonderful job and perspective on all the work being done. And so your clientele are based throughout the nation? Yeah, so RSF works across the US and Canada. Okay. Yeah. And uh, why is RSF's work innovative, important? Yeah, so why is it important? Um, 
one of, I guess, to make it simple, we move money towards values. So if you go onto our website, I think one of the first taglines is that we want to revolutionize the way that you work with money, the way that you connect with money. So at RSF, we really see money as this force. It's this um, connector, connects all people across the globe. It's also this enormous force um, of getting things done. You know, you can't get things done without money. And so what if we could use this power of connection and of getting stuff done and align it with our values? We really think that that will create the kind of world that we want to live in. Um, so that's the work that we do. And I guess to break it down a little bit less of a heart definition and more of a head definition, mm -hmm. RSF effectively has two sides of our house. Um, so on one side, we're bringing money in. Uh, we're working with investors and donors. We're talking about what their relationship is to their money and how they want to make that a more meaningful connection. So what are their values and how can they move money towards their values? Are these small family offices or just small retail investors? Yeah, good question. So all of the above. So RSF, we really pride ourselves on trying to democratize finance. So one of the important things that we did right away was to break down you know, this whole accredited investors. Only the accredited get access to impact or get access to financial returns. Yeah. For us, uh, we wanted to make that accessible to everybody. So our primary investment product has a minimum of a $1,000 buy-in um, starting rate. And then we also work with foundations. We work with wealthy individuals, You know, everybody who wants to start to be intentional about how they're using their money and flowing it through the world. So what are some of the products that RSF offers its clients? Yeah, we've evolved a lot actually since the first day that RSF was born back in the 80s. We were one of the first, I would say, impact investors in the field, one of the first people to think about integrating values into your financing decisions. Back then, we only did debt. Um, and that has been true for much of our history, and it's only more recently that RSF has started to really diversify our offerings. Today we talk a lot about, or we call it our integrated capital approach. So this is the idea that it takes multiple forms of financial and non-financial capital to support the holistic needs of an organization. So still today our primary product is debt. Um, we do mostly senior secured debt, which is generally for organizations that have a little bit more of a track record. Um, they have a couple years of operations under their belt. But we've recognized, as the field of impact investing has built behind us, we recognize that we actually need to reach deeper to reach some of the organizations that don't have access to that more senior debt product. And so we've brought in, we've worked with those investors and donors on the money inside of the house and asked them, how can we rethink risk a little bit? How can we rethink return a little bit um, and get products that are more flexible, um, more risk tolerant out to these same enterprises? And so what we've come up with are some foundation products, uh, like a shared risk fund is what we call it, which shares the risk between foundations of any losses in the portfolio. We're working in the food system to put those out mostly to food hubs um, and also a regenerative economies fund that's working on circular systems in the economy, hmm. closed loop systems. And those are kind of our medium bracket. So again, we'll think in levels. We have the senior secured debt, 
Below that, we have some more flexible products uh, called shared risk funds. And then the most flexible of all of our products, we call them collaboratives, but essentially this is philanthropic money uh, that gives us full range of how we want to deploy the dollars. So we can invest in grants, um, loan guarantees that unlock those other two buckets of money. Mm -hmm. If it's a little bit too risky, we can put a loan guarantee on it such that we can unlock uh, money. We can do investments, so equity-like investments, revenue shares, starting to rethink what um, non-extractive finance looks like, and we have full leeway to do that. And then the other piece of an integrated capital approach is the non-financial aspect, so saying, especially for a newer entrepreneur, um, not everybody has the connections to people with money. We don't all have access to friends and family capital. Right. And so how can RSF bring our community to bear around an organization's financial needs and then also non-financial needs? So who is the advisor that you need that can help you get over that hump? How can we welcome these entrepreneurs into our community and say, you know, Steve over there has been working with that same problem. Let me connect you to or giving a technical assistance grant so that they can work with somebody who really knows the industry to think through their strategic plan or their business model. Yeah. So kind of pairing all of these different forms of capital, financial and non-financial, is that integrated capital approach. And it's, I think, really guiding who RSF wants to be in the future, continuing to um, model our work around the needs of the entrepreneurs and around the needs of impact instead of modeling our work around the needs of our investors, kind of shifting that paradigm a little bit. And I love that last bucket because um, the term relational capital comes to mind, like how much value we get out of being better connected to each other and the right people within our networks. Yeah. It's invaluable. Yeah. I should touch on one more thing, actually. So I, uh, creating relationships is literally in our mission statement. So we're working to create relationships that are direct, transparent, personal. Um, and that includes with our investors. So again, talking about what's your money story? How has money shown up in your life? How does it define who you are? And how can you start to harness that story a little bit for yourself? Um, with our borrowers, you know, we offer transparency and we ask the same from them and it gives us this really beautiful deep relationship where oftentimes you'll have a borrower calling up and saying you know I really shouldn't be telling you this I can't believe I'm telling my lender this but I wanted to let you know that this is really hard for me and I need some help in this area um, and then the third piece is connecting them to each other so connecting the borrowers and investors so our investors know every single borrower in our portfolio they know every person that their money is supporting in the world wow. Um, and our borrowers have a chance to meet our investors too. So one example, we have what we call our community pricing meetings. Um, this is how we set the interest rate that goes to our investors, their return on their investment, and also the interest rate that our borrowers pay as the base of their loan payments. Mm -hmm. um, and then the third piece of that is RSF spread. So it's one number that holds three parties into it. Um, so today's RSF Prime, it's our, this internally held rate is 5.25. Like I mentioned before, our investors are getting 1% of that. Mm -hmm. RSF spread is 4.25 today. That's what we fund our operations as a nonprofit out of. And then the borrowers pay that base rate of 5.25. 
So in our community pricing meetings, we're sitting everybody to, down at a table and saying, what are your needs? Why are you at this table? And how would a shift in the interest rate up or down affect you personally? Um, so really rethinking relationship, like how can relationship come to bear on the way that we make financial decisions or how can community come to bear on this? And maybe I can, so the other side of the house. Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so uh, money in and then on the money outside of the house, that's where we get to, that's where my team gets to deploy all those funds that we bring in, the investments and the donations. We put them back out the door and activate them towards companies that are creating long-term social and ecological benefit. Um, so the primary product that we have is debt. But we've built that in a lot of tools around that to be able to meet the holistic needs of the entrepreneurs that we're working with and enable them to deepen their impact or scale their impact or what's right for them in their community. Okay. And we're going to get into scaling impact in a little bit. But yeah. I'd like to hear, you know, how does the other side of the house measure ROI, given that the social sector isn't financially driven necessarily or bottom line focused in, as the private sector often? Yeah, it's interesting. So for RSF, just to note, uh, we work across the country and we work with nonprofits and for-profits. Okay. So we also have a really interesting perspective on what impact looks like on both sides of that divide. I think so often we bucket them into totally separate buckets. Right. And what's really important to RSF is that we've break, broken down that boundary. We said that you can create impact no matter who you are, what your product is, what your service is that you're providing. Um. ROI is interesting, so I guess that means it's effectively what's what's the rate of return relative, what's the effectiveness of an investment relative to other options on the market, right? right. Um, so when we first thought about ROI, I, or when we first thought about impact, um, it was the philanthropic sector that was committed to addressing social and environmental change, right? That's how we solved problems, was mm -hmm. philanthropy. And so with philanthropy, what's the ROI there? They're not looking for it. <laughs> there is none. There is none, yeah. Yeah, totally. That's it's a negative 100 from a uh, financial perspective right. alone. Um, and so here at RSF, one of the things we're trying to do is, well, obviously, uh, break down that paradigm and say that you don't have to um, have negative 100% return on your money. You can create impact, again, from any um, place, any place that you're sitting. And so for us, our primary investment product is what we call our social investment fund. Um, so to give you a little bit of a sense of what that looks like, it's a $1,000 minimum, like I mentioned. Right now, our investors are earning a 1% return on their investments. Mm -hmm. It's a 90-day note, so super liquid, um, and it's very secure. So in our 30-plus year history, we've always returned principal and interest to our investors. We never lost a dollar of their money. Um, so what this... Wow could be compared to, it's kind of like a bank CD, you know, really liquid. Um, you can pull it out to use for life uh, expenses at any point in time. Mm -hmm. And you get a small return and you get all your money back. <laughs> so you're doing great work, yeah. just like the foundation down the street. You're doing great work with that money um, and you're getting it all back and you're getting a small return. But then of course the other side of the coin is what else isn't measured in the traditional measurement of Right. ROI. Right. The social impact. The social impact, yeah. So compared to putting your money in the S&P, if you're investing in 
RSF or if you're even investing in the farm down the street, you know, what is the return on that impact? And uh, at that point, it's a, it's a hard calculation. You know, it's something that each of us, I think, have to make for ourselves. Um, at RSF, we're, we think about investing in long-term solutions in a planet that we want to live in. Um, mm-hmm. And so that the healthy soil, the healthy, happy people, the communities that are restored through this work, that's, that's return enough for us. So is each, uh, let's say, client who's receiving funds, how you measure their impact, does that look different? Mm. So a little bit about impact measurement. Yeah. It's such a tricky question, and it's um, really top of mind, I think, for everybody right now, especially with the proliferation of the impact investing world or social finance, however Mm -hmm. you want to define it. Um, Impact investing, or sorry, impact measurement matters. You know, it's how a standard investor could look at a portfolio of options and say, this is the best one. At RSF, traditionally, we have only done qualitative impact assessment because for us, we've really, we appreciate that impact in Arkansas, in, you know, a small, for a small farmer there looks really different than it does in New York City for the workforce development company that we're working with. Right, right. So the standard approach is this really top down, like, how are you adjust, how are you um, measured on this metric? Click yes or no, or one to ten, mm-hmm. um, and we think there's so much lost when you reduce it to that. And so that's why we've told a lot of impact through stories. Um, we have really deep conversations with our borrowers. We ask them what their impact goals are, and then we stick with them, you know, for years sometimes. And we're having these conversations year over year. And like, how did you address that problem? How did you deepen your impact there? That's cool. I'm going to share that with our other borrower. So it's more of a living learning um, impact measurement. But that said, (laughs) we're actually working with a company right now and undertaking our own shot at putting some more metrics to that. Um, So more to come in the next year or so on how that'll land. Okay. Then I'll be back and ask more questions around that. Deal. Um, But I'm curious, you you guys get to work throughout North America. So where, and when I say where, I mean, you know, sector issue area or geography, are you seeing really impactful social innovations? Yeah, it's such a hard question. So a little context, RSF and our Money Up function, we're looking to work with organizations primarily in our three focus areas. So food and agriculture is the one that I focus Mm -hmm. on. We have arts and education and ecological stewardship. So those are the three main buckets um, or main tenants that we try to follow. I would say within my jurisdiction, the food and agriculture work, there is so much inspiring work happening all over the country. Um, And what I think is most inspiring about it is, like we mentioned, you know, it's happening in Arkansas, it's happening in New York City in food, it's happening um, in really rural, urban, uh, all across the world, all across the country. And it's happening in the nonprofit and the for-profit world. So like one of our borrowers, Guayaquil, your listeners might be familiar with. Oh, yeah. And you're familiar with because they're up in your hometown, basically. So they are this just tremendous company that from their start recognized that we're losing forests. Um, Deforestation down in South America is devastating. 
and they thought we have to preserve what we have left. So we're going to start a yerba mate company. They got down there and they realized actually most of the forests, rainforests are gone already. You know, 90% has been deforested. We need to do something a little different. And so they structured their business model around reforestation and this goal of reforesting 200,000 acres and creating 1,000 livable wage jobs in South America. And that's what they structured this consumer product, packaged good company around. So that is an incredible innovation to say, we want to use capitalism. We want to use yeah. the markets to drive the health of rainforests and indigenous communities in South America. They have a thousand employees in South America? That's the goal by oh, 2022, okay. I think. It's around the corner. Yeah. Wow. And you know what's also inspiring about them? They're starting to roll out a um, video and music channel. So just this idea that it's, it all comes down to people, like you and I mm. were talking about before. It's all about connections and human interaction and seeing the work in person makes such a big difference. So yeah. getting it back to the basics a little bit. So how, how does RSF and how can we as kind of a community of concerned citizens help scale companies like Guayaki and other yeah. efforts? Yeah, so scale is such a hard word, I think. Um, in our, from our perspective, we work with some companies. Guayaki is a great example where scale has this really powerful um, impact effect. And then we work with a lot of others where it's, it's not scale that we need, it's, it's replication mm -hmm. and taking okay, what yeah. works in one place, you know, and adapting it, um, replicating and adapting to the specifics of a region. Um, but one thing that I would say in terms of getting there, I, I reflect that there is so much happening, so many beneficial activities all across the country, and yet they are not accessible to everyone. And so in order to scale this effort, this massive um, effort towards better ecological and social stewardship um, of one another and the earth, I think we need to make sure that everybody has access to the social enterprises, to benefit from them, to start them, etc. Um, so one way that RSF has been working on this, we noticed that you know women are chronically underinvested in. Mm -hmm. In I think they get something like two percent of venture capital funds go to women entrepreneurs. Just staggering numbers um, of inequity. And if you consider women of color, it's of course much more dire than that. Yeah. Um, so one of the solutions that we're working on to scale, but like in a really bottoms up uh, solutions way is our Women's Capital Collaborative. So this is a pot of money that we've raised from our donors, so philanthropic funds. Um, and the criteria around this pot of money is that it has to go to women-led organizations that are serving women and girls. Um, and women and girls, women specifically, there's so much re research to show that they are really central to so many solutions around climate change and community resiliency. Mm -hmm. You invest in a woman, they invest in their child, they invest in their community, and there's this beautiful ripple effect. Um, and so some of the ways that we're trying to encourage that is by putting riskier capital. You know, it might look like a grant. It might look like an unsecured investment. These are folks who have been chronically uninvested in, so... A senior secured debt product or a more risk averse debt product doesn't fit for them. Yeah. So we're trying to get really um, 
flexible capital in their hands and make sure that they have access to the same access, access to the same ability to do good work that everybody else does. Yeah. So I know the, the social sector has traditionally provided modest ROI. Mm. So what sort of incentives do you think could be put in place to encourage nonprofits to maybe take more risks in pursuit of innovating to solve the the big problems they're tirelessly working on solving? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think in some ways, nonprofits have all the incentives that they need already. You know, nonprofits are born to create social impact. That's why they exist. So often a nonprofit will say, my goal is to put myself out of business. I want to solve this problem such that I don't have to work towards homelessness anymore. And so I think in many ways, their heart is in that um, flexible, nimble, solution-oriented mindset. And, and in, perhaps it's the funding model that needs to shift. Uh, so the more time you spend in, in finance, the more you recognize that money is, is kind of a metric for power. Yeah. And the more disconnected our world has become, I think the less willing we've become to cede any of that power to the people around us. So one of the ways that that shows up, I think it touches investing. Um, it certainly touches philanthropy too. And we see really restricted funding. So a lot of grants will come down and there'll be a representation of a funder's idea of what change should look like. Yeah. Um, not always supportive of what that grantee's vision of change, what change could look like from the ground up. So I think there's a disconnect there. I think philanthropy has this really beautiful role to support risk-taking, um, get little projects off the ground so that then, you know, the rest of the investment sector can kind of hold them through a growth phase. But those early days, there's nothing that can take the place of risk-tolerant philanthropy. So we're hoping to see more of that in the sector. I had a question and it escaped me. Um, <laughs> okay. So, so where, where are you finding some, some strong models of social innovation that can be replicated? That it works in Alabama and we can go and take it to Alberta? Yeah. Yeah. So the thing that we're most excited about, and this isn't quite your question, Okay. But I think it touches on the answer, which is we're excited about ownership models. So what's really exciting now is that the impact space is starting to grow. It's starting to mature a little bit. Um, we have a lot of business owners who we've known for years who are starting to um, think about succession planning. And all of these things point to a transition, a potential transition of values. So the bigger you get, the harder it is to hold on to your values. And the more meaningful it is to think about ownership structure and how those values are really baked into a business. So I guess some examples of things that we're seeing in the field, you know, this benefit corporation movement, mm -hmm. have B you Corps, heard of yeah. B Corps? Yeah. So this is an incredibly powerful tool that helps businesses really bake impact into their business model, into their corporate structure. It puts it on a pedestal right next to profits, you know, so that when the stakeholders have to consider that organization's direction, they have to put mission right next to profits. And that's so powerful. Um, a couple other things we're seeing, you know, cooperative models 
are very neat. How can your community hold the ownership, the governance, benefit from the success of a given um, initiative? That's mm -hmm. really incredible. It's this um, incentive alignment and it keeps profits in a community and in a, um, in a venture and in a really beautiful way. And then one other thing that is amazing that we're seeing popping up is this innovative use of the nonprofit model. So in the past, we always used to think about nonprofits as filling a market void. You know, right. Yeah, you can't make enough on this service, so you have to incorporate as a nonprofit to have access to philanthropy to mm -hmm. cover the difference between what you can charge and the full cost. But now we're seeing these tech companies, and you know, it's tough in the early days of a tech company, but down the line, you have 98% margins or something. These companies are incorporating as nonprofits so that those profits, that 98% margin down the road, has to be reinvested into the organization, into the communities that they're serving. So, so I haven't heard this. Uh, what, <laughs> what's a, an example of one of these corporations or nonprofits? tech companies that's doing this. Yeah, there's a number that we've worked with recently, one that pops to mind, they're called Watt Time. And so they're helping, they're thinking about how we can switch our personal energy usage or on a um, company level to renewable sources. Because go figure, um, the com power companies have not made it easy for us to decide whether or not we want to use renewable energy. Yeah or um, traditional power sources or dirty power sources. And so they suddenly found a technology and ability using just publicly available data and a tech platform to give you that choice. So suddenly, you know, you plug your phone in overnight and it's, you don't need to charge the whole eight hours you're sleeping, but your phone with this technology um, activated can choose to only charge when it's clean energy on the system. It only pulls from clean power sources. So overnight, we can have essentially this massive shift towards clean power and an incentive that has not been in play ever before right. to promote more clean energy production. Right now, we actually waste a lot of the clean energy that we produce. And so they incorporate it as a nonprofit for that exact reason. They're saying we see down the road that there will be an incentives challenge um, to make sure that this remains aligned with our original intentions. And we think in this corporate structure, we'll be able to keep it true to our mission. And that's what energy, W-A-T-T? -T. What time, yeah. What time. What yeah. Time. And they're in the Bay Area, actually. I'm going to try of to course. go and see them for future episodes. <laughs> you should. Um, I remember the question I was going to ask. Uh, so I've been to a few fundraisers in the last few weeks and one thing I keep hearing from the the EDs and the auctioneers and even the donors who are in attendance all the conversations seem to be around um, you know funding programs funding programs mm -hmm. because in the nonprofit sector there seems to be an aversion to funding overhead mm, yes and overheads important it's who are the people who are going to apply their time their minds their hearts to solving these problems. Do you think that's a, a cultural shift that the donor community needs to undergo? Gosh, I, yes, I wish that that word could just be banned from our vocabulary. Uh, I, I do think that that's one of those words that surfaced from 
a desire to control the nonprofit sector. It certainly didn't bubble up. There's no definition of what is overhead and what isn't overhead. So you have different nonprofits. I mean, sometimes playing the game a little bit, you know, saying I can kind of put this over in this bucket or maybe another nonprofit is trying to stay true. I don't know, true to what, but yeah, so there's no clear definition and yet we hold it as this measure of efficiency. Um, I'm hoping, and I think I see it happening in the philanthropic world, that they're thinking about efficiency in a different way and taking a more holistic view of impact and saying that whatever it takes for you to get the best results, we want to support you to do that. Right, and sometimes that means hiring someone who's more expensive. Yeah. And as somebody who's supporting a nonprofit, I'm more concerned about impact than their you know, financials or P&L statements. Yeah, why do we care about that? We should care about how many people they're serving, right. of course. Right. Yeah. So, so jumping back to your, uh, your food expertise, what, what do you think that people need to understand about the food system, and why is it so important that we change it? Yeah, I love food. It's fun to eat. <laughs> I'm sure and you cook. Can, and cook. Yes, I'm a huge cook, too. I think one of the things that first drew me to food was its power to unite us. So it unites us with one another and this really basic need uh, with our culture, with other cultures, uh, brings us into community and it connects us to the earth in a way that honestly nothing else does on a day-to-day basis at least. Um, And yet I think the more you look at how our current food system has evolved, there's a lot to compare it to our current financial system. So when I think about our financial system here today, and this is everything that RSF is trying to break down, our financial system is opaque, it's transactional, um, it's designed to maximize profit over people and planet. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think the food system in many ways is the same. So it's really hard to know now where that carrot you got is from. It's certainly not from the farm down the street. It's more likely to be from... Argentina or Mexico. Um, It's transactional, you know, we're spending money based on a commodities market and not what does it take for that farmer to earn a living wage. Um, So we're really trying to rebuild relationships, um, both in the financial sector and in the food and agriculture sector. Unfortunately, I think today food has become a central component of some of our greatest, the greatest challenges that face us as a civilization. So I think about climate change, Mm -hmm. food and agriculture together are the greatest contributor to climate change on our planet today. Um, And social injustice too. Uh, You know, when you think about how this country was founded originally on stolen land from indigenous tribes and um, from the labor of slave labor, those systems haven't really changed. We still have some really terrible practices of building our food system off the backs of marginalized communities through forced labor, uh, through really dangerous chemicals in the system, and taking land, not allowing equal access to ownership of land, and then creating these really crappy food um, that we feed people that makes us all sick. And so access to the good food that 
you and I probably get a chance to enjoy because we're in the Bay Area um, is not accessible to most people. So I, I really see food as this powerful intersection between climate change and food justice or social justice. Um, and if we can fix the system and realign it a little bit more around people, uh, around health and soil health and community health, it has this powerful opportunity to change. You know, there's so much, I don't know if you've seen the book Drawdown. No. It's uh, by Paul Hawk and it's worth checking out. There's, they have, I think, the hundred top solutions for how to reverse climate change how to actually pull carbon down out of the air. So we've released all this carbon. Agriculture is one of the reasons, but we've released all this carbon into the air. And what are the ways that we already know that we can pull carbon back out of the air? Um, and agriculture is also the number one solution. So the, we're the biggest problem and we're the top solution. So healthy soil, when you invest in your soil by you know not putting chemicals in it, by not tilling it every year, um, by putting diverse crops and rotating your crops and using livestock as um, an invigorator, a soil invigorator, as opposed to the way that we currently produce livestock. All of these things actually bring carbon back down into the soil. It makes for more nutritious food. Um, it makes more, for more productive soil, and it gives us a better atmosphere. And then once we start investing in our health in that way, in the health of the soil, that can trickle back up to the communities that are eating the food. So I really see it as this beautiful intersection of um, human and environmental health that we're all really craving right now. Yeah. I'm touched by your passion around this. <laughs> I love say. food. Yeah. 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 Um, well, so what's like one daily practice that you think anyone could incorporate into their daily routine to move us towards uh, more this vision that you just talked about? Daily practice. It sounds a little jargony, but I, I guess the thing that comes to mind is like it's never too early or too late to live your values. So I think taking some intentional space, you know, not necessarily on a daily basis, but every now and then to think about what you value in the world and then hold that next to how you're making decisions. So how, when you go to the grocery store, what food are you buying? When you go shopping for clothes, how are you thinking about purchasing your clothes? When you go, you know, interacting with your community, there are so many touch points in our lives that I think we overlook, you know, they've yeah. just really been, um, become a little bit rote in our routines. And so, the more that we can be intentional about the decisions that we're making and allow ourselves to live those values out in the little ways, day to day, I think those really add up. Thank you for that. Um, you said this really interesting nexus. So what advice do you have for social innovators? And you could take this on either side of the house. Mm. Advice, yeah. I mean, it's in some ways the same thing, but... You know, good intentions do not create a good business. So we talk a lot with our entrepreneurs. It's, it's not just the product that you create, but it's the culture of your company. It's your supply chain. It's the community that you're building. It's every input and output of your system as a company matters. Um, and so I think 
the more that you can bake that into your business model from day one, you can bake it into your ownership structure, the way that you raise capital, those things are going to pay out dividends and impact Mm -hmm. along the way every day down the line. So think about what your values are, build them into your pitch deck. We look at so many pitch decks from companies that are all about, this is our, these are our great margins. This is our ROI. This is um, all of the financial impact and financial success that we can have because they think they're talking to investors and Mm -hmm. that's what we're oriented around. But we're like, Okay, tell us about your impact. Build that into the story and how you pitch yourself. Excellent. I, I want to be respectful of your time. I know you're up to important work. you got a lot of clients. So any final words or calls to action? Hmm. Um, I don't know. I guess just to say that it's hard. You know, like I've just slowly dabbled or waded into this work more and more, and suddenly you realize, shoot, you know, those pants I was buying actually are uh-huh. – you know, the practices behind those little day-to-day pieces of your life, it's really hard to unravel and create some transparency there. The system is kind of stacked against transparency and really understanding what your impact is. But I don't know, reconnecting with your food and reconnecting with your community um, and all of the pieces of our lives, it, it feels good. So I think it's really important work to, important path to take. Absolutely. Thank you so much for taking the time to connect today. Yeah, thank you, Danielle. Very few of us have the ability to contribute enough to efforts that we deeply care about in a way that would radically change their impact. And we can all donate to important work, contribute to our favorite artists, and share important information with our networks to support the efforts we care about. Every day, each and every one of us has the opportunity to support good work. So whether you are a manager of a hedge fund, the director of a social service program, an artist, a tradesman, whatever, we can all fund good work by being conscious about how we spend money. So go vote with your wallet every time you make a purchase and ensure your dollars are supporting important work and efforts that are uplifting humanity. To learn more about social innovations and impact investing, I encourage you to read Real Impact, The New Economics of Social Change by Morgan Simon. Investing with Impact, Why Finance is a Force for Good, by Jeremy Balkin, and The B Corp Handbook, How to Use Business as a Force for Good, by Ryan Honeyman. Once again, I'd like to give a shout out to Jay Lately and extend a big dose of gratitude his way. Jay Lately is the music that is behind Onward. Jay Lately is a hip-hop artist making great independent music. Check him out, soundcloud.com backslash just lately. Thank you once again for tuning in. Make sure to subscribe to Onward via iTunes, SoundCloud, Anchor FM. I'd be extremely grateful if you could share this with your audience. A little tweet goes a long way nowadays. Until next time, Onward and Upward.